Hey everybody, this is Kim Blackwell and Louis Extravaganza and this is Work, Work, the podcast. Voices for the voices that go unheard. Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of Work. Today we are speaking to Vincent Castellanos, a dancer, actor, writer, and director, and actually so much more. Born in Havana, Vincent was brought to America at a very young age of nine years old, where his life became a story of survival, creative escape, self-knowledge, and reinvention. Vincent has been reinventing himself since the age of six. We talked to Vincent today about his 30-year career in the arts, his journey to self-realization, and the all-important question, who am I? Work. I'm so impressed by that introduction. (laughs) My God, Lewis. Can I tell you, it has been that way for you, no? It's funny because you say it has been that way. It still is that way. I think that's awesome. There is no end. Right. The uh, the end is death. And I'm alive, baby. I am alive and kicking. Say it for the people in the back. Amen, somebody. Uh, No, seriously, you know, I used to think that so much of what happens in life is that you do things once. Things happen once. And you do this once. And what I've learned is that there is no such thing. It's just life is open-ended. And so my journey is up and ended. I don't know how many more reinventions I have in me. Right. I'm working on three different things right now. Now you came to America, ta-da, came to America at nine years old. How was that? What was that for you? So that was interesting because I'm an only child and I wasn't raised by my parents for the first two years. My grandparents and my aunt raised me. And in my in Cuba, I never really, I knew that I was an only child intellectually, but I didn't know what that meant because I was surrounded by family and cousins. And I always, I was never alone. Right. So we come to the United States, which I knew we were doing, and I was excited to do because I had this idea of what the United States were. And it kind of was that in many ways, and then it wasn't that. In other ways. But what happened is I I get here and all of a sudden, real quick, I realize what it means to be an only child. First of all, here I am with these two people that are my mom and my dad, but our relationship it's a little strained and I don't feel hundred percent comfortable with him. And I'm realizing that for the first time because in my in in Cuba I didn't have to even think about that. Plus I was too young. So I get here five days after we arrived. And my parents have to go to work. It's May. They can't enroll me in school because school is down until September. So from 5 a.m. to 5 in the afternoon, Monday through Friday, this nine-year-old boy is left in this apartment. The doors are locked. There's three little snacks. And there I am on my own. And my mom calls. My dad calls periodically. They're working. And there I am thinking, what? Can I say fuck? Yeah, oh, yes. Here's some of the things that I would do. I would pick up the phone, right? I wouldn't call anybody, but I would have conversations with everyone in Cuba. I would spend hours just talking to these people, my friends. God, it's making me emotional. My friends, my family members, my cousins. I would just have conversations, and then I would hang up and go call you later, and then I would do it again. But wait, you were actually calling them, or you were no, baby, I imagining? Pick up the the the. How do you call it? The receiver? Yes. I would pick up the receiver back in the. Remember, like the remember, like the the rotary thing? No. Yeah, no, you don't. I don't. I'm sorry. I don't either. I saw it on TV. Lies. I it. Baby, it's 1971. I don't know. Catch it. And I am picking up the receiver and pretending. You are in this studio apartment. That's right. Nine years old. That's right. Miami. This That's is right. all very new to you. And now you're very much alone. 100% alone. So you're tapping into this creative fantasy mm-hmm. place in your being which already as... existed in me because i had already created that early on like three or four but now this is survival mode yeah that's right it always was survival mode oh okay and how are that? your parents left you with your grandparents so they could come here and work the no. man so my parents my mother and my father got together they had me and I'm not sure what the story is. There's many versions, but for some reason, my grandparents and my aunt 
raised me for the first two years. My brother, my parents would take me on the weekends. Were you born? You were born in Cuba. This is all happening in Cuba. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so then at around two and a half, my parents decide, oh, no, no, we're going to take him. And so they take me. So now I'm living with them. Okay. I was the first grandchild with blue eyes and blonde hair. And so, like, for instance, I never bought store clothes until I came to the United States. My mother, my aunt, and my grandmother would make my entire wardrobe for nine years. Oh, my God. Well, I mean, in in Cuba, there are a lot of... Uh shades of skin color right and a lot of mixed yes. Races. Yes. yes and a lot of mixed races so you're so, almost like this golden child blonde haired blue eyed you must have had this like i don't know charmed life i mean they're making clothes for you well they were treating me like as if i was an object as if i was a doll i mean i was not allowed to play with kids i was barely allowed to play with my cousins and that and that was under supervision like we would go to parties for instance i was a child and in cuba the piñatas we don't beat it with a stick like they do here right there's strings hanging from the from the bottom of it and the kids pull the strings candies fall you drop on the floor and you get candies. Well, I would be sitting on a couch in the middle of this party. My mother would be under the piñata getting the candies and bringing them to me. <laughs> so that was... The little prince. Mm, the little... Well, that's yeah. what used to call we can't be having candy fall on my baby now. El principito. And so what happened was that that's when creation or creativity became my survival. Mm. Because I had an entire posse in my head that I would hang out with and ideas and I would have conversations and I would escape into that place just to be okay yeah because mm. otherwise I was isolated and I couldn't it was almost like I was in the world but I couldn't participate it was like I, I was I was being raised watching the world as opposed to being in the world and then when I was five I discovered puppet theater and then that was really the key because then I had an outlet then I was like, not only was I, it was the first time that I was giving a voice to these things that were going in me, but then, you know, I was also doing storybooks like La Caperucita Roja, Little Red Riding Hood and all that. So it was like, I started to use my creativity in a different way. So by the time I get to Miami and I'm nine years old, I'm already very accustomed to escaping into creativity. Oh my God, that's, that's, I mean, that's. It almost leaves me speechless because most people come into their creative outlet or their knowing what they want to do and not in that way, right? As you know, yeah, I don't know. That's how I got to it. That's how I came to it. It's it's creativity is my saving grace. It has always been my saving grace. Creativity in, in many ways is a manifestation of the power greater than myself that guides my life. Everything I do is creative, and we can get into that a little bit later. But if I'm not working from that place, I am miserable. Yeah. I am not living my life. I am not 100% integrated Vincent. Yeah. So... I think that's kind of the message. Like, who are you? Yes. Right. So you're this nine-year-old boy, and now uh, September rolls around. Do you start school? Are, do you speak English? I don't. No. So I learned to speak English right away. Cause okay. I was, and then, oh, so on top of this, I've always been a, a, a straight-A student. Always. Creative, straight-A's, you know, best little boy. Boy in the world, crazy. Best in my dressed, hand. Best dressed, <laughs> pretty. I mean, there's pictures of all this. But yeah. anyway, so yeah, I go to school. But I think what's really important about, since this is mostly about creativity and reinvention and stuff, I think one of the most, which I believe I started reinventing myself at the age of four. The way that I see it is like the world as I was living in it wasn't acceptable or wasn't, I couldn't handle it. So I went away. That's a form of recreation. Yes. Right. So, uh, but I think what's significant about what happened that year at 10 is that my parents, so because of what I just told you, I kind of like shut down and I was having a little bit of like a nervous breakdown and my parents were smart enough and loving enough and caring enough to pick up on that. And so they enrolled me in a folklore dance company. So you can have some kind of outlet. So I could have an outlet. And it was a saving grace. That and rum and cokes were a saving grace. (laughs) (laughs) That and rum and coke. Let's let's keep it 100. (laughs) Let's let's keep it 100. (laughs) Okay. Motherfucking hundred. <laughs> That's awesome. 
I don't know. I keep going back to this nine-year-old boy, and I know I'm harping on this, but I just feel I, I feel for the nine-year-old boy stuck in that studio all day long. So it's Listen, almost by the grace of God that you get it's this It's nothing outlet. but the grace of God. And it's like, you know, it's like it's, it's part of the bigger picture. Again, we're talking about like, who am I? Right? Yeah. Who are we? Why are we here? It's all related. That needed to happen for me to be sitting here talking about my journey with you today. That needed to happen for me to have the kind of journey that I've had for you to be interested in talking to me. Right. Nothing happens by chance. I look at kids today. And I see what nine looks like, what five looks like, what 12 looks like, what 14 looks like. And it's almost as if I can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I left my daughter to come here because her dad was on the way. Mm -hmm. He's like, okay, he's going to be here in 10 minutes. Let me go. They've been waiting. So she was going to be home for 10 minutes and it was a whole like production. Mm -hmm. It's like, are you sure? Listen, do you want to come? No, I think I'll be okay. Okay. Do you want to call dad? Make sure he's going to, and you know, it's like the downstairs door is locked downstairs. Her door is locked. Yeah. The reason this is happening at nine in Miami is actually because I had really great parents because yeah. they needed to go to work to right. provide for me. So it was I was a victim of circumstance in a way. Could my parents have made other choices? I don't know. <laughs> what would those other choices be? Right. They don't work, we don't make money. We don't make money, we're homeless. You have a nine-year-old kid, you have no one to leave him with. Yes. Which is the part that I'm kind of like, wait, why not? Because I had a lot of family in Miami. Right, hmm. right. That was my next question. I was like, did you have other extended family? What about all those people? Right. Yeah. Right? So whatever. But it's like, listen, it was traumatic. It was intense. And it was amazing. Hmm. It was a gift. Yeah. Now it they, was a gift. They give you this outlet now. You go into folkloric dancing, yeah? Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. It was great because we started doing dances from Chile and Mexico and Argentina, all their folkloric dances, and I'm, and I'm doing a great job. Alicia Alonso, which was the name of the teacher, it was her company. Uh, she's grooming me. I'm supposed to be like this, you know, she's making me into this folklore dancer. But then I discovered jazz. Jazz. And by the age of like 15, no, it was 16 now because I have my car. So at 16, I started taking jazz class. Now, how does that come about? How do you discover jazz? Because I liked it. I watched it. I was watching TV and I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that. Yes. Ah. Uh, and by that point, it was like, remember the Liza? Oh, you don't. You guys are children. The Liza Minnelli specials, the, oh. all that stuff. I don't know who Liza Minnelli is. <laughs> I'm so sorry. And so I'm like, I want to I wanna do that, which eventually, well, anyways. It's genius. Liza with a Z. I mean, oh, one of the most Ed, amazing. Mama. Yeah. So I am, I'm taking class with uh, Armando Navarro. That was like the hot jazz teacher in Miami. And so right away, three months into it, I get a job at a nightclub. So now I'm 17 and I'm dancing at a nightclub. Yeah, but you win an award. Tell us about your award, right? Real quick. So before I start dancing, <laughs> before I start dancing at the nightclub, no, actually I was already dancing at the nightclub, but oh, yeah. I was also doing theater here and there because okay. the nightclub was only Friday and Saturday nights. And so I win Best New Dancer, which is uh, it, it, the award was the ACCA, ACCA. I don't remember what it stands for anymore, but it was kind of the equivalent of the Tony in. Cuban Miami okay and I was like a big deal I'm in the newspaper I'm working all the time as a dancer so right around the time so now I'm 17 I graduated high school at 16 so now I'm dancing now I'm like fuck school so <laughs> <laughs> I know you were talking you were talking to Eddie Eddie yeah. X and he was a dancer for Edie Chacon yes where Edie Chacon had a competition her name was Chatty Teen. So yes. when Eddie was doing the Eddie Chacon show on TV, I was doing the Chatty Teen show on TV. <laughs> oh my God. And we I didn't can't. know one another. Is she Cuban? She's, uh, she's Dominican. Okay. But the, the gossip is that Chatty Teen's husband producer used to be Edie Chacon's husband producer. He like created, discovered and created Edie Chacon, left her, went and did Chatty Teen. I mean, it was, it was <gasps> all scandal. But wait, it gets even better. So there's a festival in Miami called Calle Ocho. So I am now a backup dancer, and I'm doing backup dancing for Veronica Castro, for Angelica Maria. These are all like Mexican stars. And at that time, they were huge. 
And I get an opportunity to be the backup dancer for the queen of all queens, Celia Cruz. Oh, my God. <sighs> I want to cry right now. So I'm doing the show. My father shows up and starts talking to Celia. And I didn't know because he never told me. I knew my father was a big band singer, a big band singer in Cuba. He was like Rigo Ricardo of Cuba. Wow. <laughs> Turns out when Celia was beginning... Con la Sonora Matancera back in, my, back in Cuba, my father and his band had played gigs with Celia Cruz and her band, and they knew each other. Wow. So it was one of those, like, one of those moments that I, I mean, now I look back and it's like, motherfucker, that's legendary. Yeah. I got to be a backup dancer with Celia Cruz. My father used to play gigs with his band, which Celia Cruz was doing with her band. And it's like, Again, that thing that we were talking about that we tapped into earlier, it's like the universe, these things happen. You know, there was a reason all these things had to happen to lead me to that. And then right. to lead me from that to the next phase, which was I then auditioned and I got a um, the role and I was one of the dancers in Where the Boys Are Two, where the boys are was a movie in the 60s i get cast in the new version with lorna loft and who is liza minnelli's sister thank you <laughs> liza minnelli was somebody that i was watching i wanted to be a dancer like her backup dancer so see it's all like there were no coincidences wow so anyways ask me questions because I, I can just go off on a tangent <laughs> <laughs> well okay so we you started off as a puppeteer at five <laughs> that's right <laughs> As we all do. As That's we all right. do, right? You're escaping into this fantasy place in your head. You're now a folkloric dancer, jazz dancer, backup dancer. You get this movie, Where the Boys Are, and what happens after that? I have, to, I, have to, I have to go back for one second because this story informs the rest of my life at 17. So right when I start doing jazz, I then start studying ballet. Now, yes. ballet is not acceptable to my parents. I can mm. do folklore, I can do jazz, but you can't do ballet. Ballet is for fag faggots and you're not a faggot, which of course I was. I have been a faggot my entire life. Still am. Anyway. Uh, and by the way, faggot wasn't a derogatory term back in the day when I was born. Right. That was just like what we called each other. Now I'm gay. So, uh, <laughs> but they didn't, um, People used it as their derogatory term no, I'm talking between about, us. Yes, exactly. I'm talking about your, your parents. So it never came up with... Did you know at that time, with 17, oh, that I, you were gay? I do, and it was already on and cracking. Okay. And it was, oh, God, yes. So the story that I want to say real quickly is that... So I get uh, we get this show at the University of Miami. I just showed uh, Lewis a picture earlier. I'll show it to you later. Yes. Uh, so I do this show, right? And so it's me and six girls... And it's ballet, it's modern dance, and it's jazz, right? Now, my father didn't know that I was dancing ballet. Okay. Right? So I come on stage, and I stand in my pose, and I'll show you the picture. And from the audience, I hear, maricón, maricón, faggot, no, faggot. No, the whole audience. No. Well, not the whole audience. I'm being dramatic. But I, they're, they're being catcalled, faggot. Wow. And I look, and there's my dad standing right there. And I look out, and in my mind, I'm like, I am going to give the best performance of my motherfucking life. Let's go. And I do this show, and I kill it. Now, I knew that there was a motel in Miami Beach that I could stay for $9 a day. And I had $90 I will never forget. And I had a car already. So I go backstage, I change, I get my bag, and I'm starting to walk out and like, 100 yards away or something, I don't know from math, but a little bit away, I see my dad right in my path, and I'm like, fuck. So I start walking, like, bring it. I'm ready. Let's do this. I know we're gonna, it's going to be a fight. I get close to my father, and he just, I realize that he's, his eyes are like runny. He's like crying a little bit. And he says to me, you have a gift. Oh. You must never give up. Opportunity will knock. You must always be ready. Amazing. The reason I'm telling you this story is that it's because every single time, I'm 58 now, every single time I've wanted to quit, I've heard his voice and I've stayed or I've reinvented myself or I'll shift it. But it's a thing that's kept me going. You know, there's been, 
angels and messages coming into my life, my whole life. Yeah. And even though at the time I think I never or I couldn't, I wasn't able to perceive them as such, in hindsight as an adult, I can appreciate it and I can see the influence they had in my life. So today I live in the gratitude for it. Today I live in the awareness of all the things that continue to come my way. Well, that's so powerful too, coming from your father. I mean, that's what we all want as children and hopefully that we all aspire to as parents is that he transcended that whole prejudice he had with ballet and that whole you know in the latin community that machismo and to to get past that and to hear this audience saying maricon and to you know to embrace you and to say you have a gift is major it's major my father was my father's my hero. My father was like, yeah. he taught me style. He taught me music. He taught me all about the Americans' movie stars. He was a big band singer. And he was an incredible guy. He was also very wise. He was a guy that everyone on the blog, friends, family, everybody would come to my father for guidance and advice. Yeah. And he was always like there for them. He was an incredible man. The only, I don't have any regrets. It's not a regret. But if, 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 if there's a miracle it was like okay let's grant you one wish it would be dinner with my father yeah one more dinner with my father oh because you see he never he never really got to meet adult vincent right when did he pass away he passed away in 92. Yeah, I was an adult, but I, I didn't become an adult until a couple of years ago. Yeah. I was only I was only working from that wounded child mm. and that rebellious teenager. Yeah. I, that's how I ran my life. Yeah. It wasn't until a couple of years ago that I actually was introduced to adult Vincent. Right. Right? So adult Vincent would love to sit down with his father and go like, hey, dad. Let's get into it. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, I'm I'm in awe of him. And I know, I believe in all this bullshit, that I know that he's always with me. And the reason he's always with me is because I choose it. I bring him with me. Yes. I bring my mother as well. So, all right, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm going on tangent, so you stop me. <laughs> no, but I, it's not about stopping you. I mean, I've just been sitting here and thank God you know, I have a partner like Kim that can pick up the ball and keep running with it. I've just been sitting here just silently tearing up because, yeah, and I don't want to make this about myself, but I I feel that I know that story. I know that story because it was and me going in who front was of doing the whole ballet, school, right? the whole school, and they wanted me to do the ballet piece that I did for my audition at performing arts that right. got me into the <laughs> yes. school, right. you know, and I'm there in my white ballet slippers, black tights and black leotard. And it's completely silent, completely silent. Mm. And I just, you know, I just do the, I just do it. And at the end, there's oh it's so dramatic it's always that silence before they break out into applause like, yes yes oh. you don't know which way it's gonna go yeah you're right. holding your oh, breath no, no, no. you're like <laughs> you know is this the the death of me right yeah now? they're about like, to throw stones yeah <laughs> or and, and thank goodness you know it, they broke out into applause oh this you know this faggot is talented yes right blah 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 yes but see, and that's, it was but, my that, dad there that support you know that supported me like throughout all that and yeah he came from quote unquote the old country and all that was considered unmasculine and yeah. he was mm -hmm. but it's so funny because what i hear in your story and what i see in my story is that authentic creativity it's always appreciated and accepted like i came on stage and it was faggot you came on stage and it was silent we do what we do we are our authentic creator self and we turn that shit around. Well, there you go. That's People the word, right? Recognize Authentic it. Authenticity. You know, what is undeniable. It's that's like, right. nope, this is this is it. Like, whatever you got coming at me, this is it, baby. This yes. is, that's yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So you did Where the Boys Are too, right? I did. Uh-huh. And I, then, but that propelled your life in a different direction. Right. So I, had a, I moved to New York in 80, and... I was partying and going crazy and blah, blah. Taking dance class, you know, Phil Black, Frank Hatchett, <gasps> Luigi. I danced with Phil Black, too. Phil Black, Phil Black used to throw the stick at me. Remember the stick? <laughs> yes. No. Uh -huh. Phil Black used but to I get was, me. But I was really, really young. I took you his tap. You were a baby. I was a baby. And it was just like a Saturday tap class, you know, really early. So you didn't get the stick? I didn't get the stick. <laughs> Honey, I would show up to Phil Black's class drunk or hungover, and he would literally pull me from my shirt, 
pull me out of the class, pull me, pull me, pull me, throw me in a chair in the, in the office, told me to sit there and not take class, but to watch it. Wow. And after class, he would come in and he would lecture me on like, you have talent and you're useless. What are you doing with it? And I had always, I had people had always said like, oh, I'm so talented, I'm so talented. Yeah. But nobody has said to me, you're talented. What are you doing with it? Right. It's your responsibility. Not everybody has that gift. What are you going to do with it? So what do you do with it? I quit. Wow. Wow. Like, listen, Phil Black, do you know the struggle? This is New York, 1980, okay? There's cafeteria. There's Paradise Mirage. <laughs> what you, do you want from me? Don't you realize I need to party and drink and have sex uh, so <laughs> no i quit and i go to miami and i go to miami to f- for some holiday i think it must have been thanksgiving and i discover acid and i end up in the hospital and so now i'm in miami nine months and in those nine months i get my shit together i audition for where the boys are i get it i make money i go back to new york so do you think you quit was it because you were scared or was it just because you just didn't, you weren't ready? Just- Kim, that was such a, that's such a wonderful question. And I don't know that I have an answer for that. I quit because I couldn't see at this point, at this point in my life, I don't, I don't believe anyone. Hmm. I don't believe I'm talented. I don't believe I'm beautiful. I don't believe, believe I'm gifted. I believe, I believe I'm damaged and I'm a piece of shit and I need to disappear. And that's the irony because somebody is now telling you in your face, like, listen, I'm holding you accountable. You got to get your shit together. You are gifted. And you're like, ooh. Right. So what happens is you're shining the light and the light is so bright, I could never go back to yes. that. Yes, yes. Because to see it, it's too scary because I don't believe it. Yes. Right. So I walk away. Right. But the universe call it God, call it whatever, oh, it's bigger. What happens when I go to Miami and I end up in the hospital and I have to be there for nine months? I get casting where the boys are. Wow. There it is again. This time I go back to New York and then I'm more applied. Now I stop auditioning for dance and I start studying acting. Okay. And so I study with various teachers, Susan Shepard, uh, William Esper, and then I meet Ellen Burstyn. She's writing this book on acting through a spiritual path. It's a workshop. It's a six-month workshop. I get into it with her. Uh, It's only 25 of us or 20 of us. It was a small group. And so she decides to bring me into the acting actor studio. And I go into the actor studio and I hate it and I quit. Uh, and, but at this time I'm still doing plays. I'm doing plays here and there. I'm working with different people. Uh, why did you hate the actor studio? Because in the actor studio, what happens is all the members get an opportunity to give you feedback. Okay. And I'm like, I don't give a fuck about what you have to say about my work. Even the students. I don't respect you. Right. The students get. I just wanted Al Pacino taught and uh, uh, Ellen Burstyn taught. And when they taught, I wanted to get their feedback. I wanted to hear what you have to say. I don't care about you who got into the actor studio 30 <laughs> years ago and haven't worked a day in your life in 20. Shut the fuck up. Right? Word. And I'm like, I'm out. Word. I'm out. Yeah. So I yeah. walk out of the actor studio, and but I'm still doing theater. I'm still going to auditions now because I'm sober, right? So eventually I get sober. At this point, it's starting to get bad, right? So I'm going to auditions where I'm not showing up, where I'm going to audition and I do it and you give me another and I tell you to fuck off. Wow. And I leave and I walk away. And so it keeps getting worse. I did do some good theater. I was, for instance, I was one of the last two actors cast by Joseph Papp before he died for the public theater and I did three plays there wow. I did a play uh, a remounting of uh, uh, 40 Deuce um, a theater for the new city directed by Tom Horgan who had done Lenny Jesus Christ Superstar and Hair on Broadway wow. uh, so I've, I have moments right yes. when I apply myself and I show up I can do the deal but it's hard to commit. It's hard to show up. It's hard to, because at this point I am lost, 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 lost. Just in terms of like where, what you want to do or in terms of like, who am I? What am I doing? I don't want to die. I feel damaged. I feel like a fake. Right. And I'm just putting more and more drugs and alcohol in my body. Okay. Right. And it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So fast forward, I get sober. December 28th, between Christmas and New Year's. Okay. Oh, wow. And I, at that point, 
I decide I'm either going to audition for, I'm going to audition for Juilliard. And if I don't get in, I'm going to audition for Win Handman. And so Win Handman's audition was like in two days. And okay. Juilliard was like a couple of months away. So I'm like, let me just do Win Handman and see how I feel. Now, Win Handman is the best coach teacher in New York at the moment. Right. At that time, it's 1995 now, because it's January 95. He's the best. He's like you audition for him and then you don't hear for like six months to a year. There's no space in his classes. I auditioned for him, let's say today. I auditioned with uh, the opening monologue, not the opening monologue, but the monologue that Brad Davis does in The Normal Heart, where he's told that the character of Brad Davis, Nate, it's told that he's got AIDS. So I do that monologue. I go to Win Handman. I do the monologue. At the end of the monologue, Win Handman offers me a space in his class that's starting that's tomorrow damn so i go right in i later found out that brad davis was a student of win handman and he had coached him throughout and he saw it's again the universe i was drawn to that part right right i do that monologue turns out i get goose pimples right now that i audition i do that monologue to the guy who had taught and coach Brad Davis. So all of a sudden, that guy sees a similarity between me and Brad Davis. Yeah, because he knows that piece inside out. Takes me right in. Again, I could not have planned that, imagined that, created that. Or the other version is, I absolutely created that moment. I absolutely made that happen. It's depending on which way you want to go. Right. What's the choice? What do you want to believe in your life? What is the truth? What truth are you living? What is your truth? Right? right. Now, this is all in hindsight, obviously. At the moment, I'm just auditioning. Right? Nine months after that, I get my first. I had done Carlito's Way that last summer before I got sober. And it was fantastic. I got to do two scenes with Al Pacino, whom I already knew from the actor studio. And Brandon Palma directed. And so great right before the movie comes out, I get this letter because back in the days letters saying that our part was cut except for one scene and so i was like you know again oh my life is right so i go do whatever so i go to the premiere i see this i see myself and it's like whatever blah blah, blah. anyway so <laughs> I, <laughs> that's not enough it's not enough because at that point nothing was enough right 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 and so nine months Sober, eight months working with Wynn, I get cast in The Crow, the second Crow, City of Angels, in New York, and I end up in uh, L.A. And then that's how my life as a film and TV actor begun, uh, begins here in L.A. And that's how I end up here. You're most known, at least for me and a, and a lot of people who follow you, you're most known as Mateo. <laughs> that's right. In a... The spectacular blockbuster <laughs> Anaconda. Listen, let me tell you about Anaconda. Anaconda has okay. paid the bills and to some extent still does. Because the residuals on that shit were like, why are people still seeing that? I just got a check for $1,600 from Anaconda. What? Don't okay. you just love that word, residuals? I think uh, that's the best <laughs> word oh my God. ever. It's, it's like, Saving I just got one for the actor, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got one for 16 cents. I love it. A couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. How did oh, it yes. come about? Like, yes. how did you end up getting cast? Yes. yes. That's yes. another interesting story. So I do The Crow. I finish The Crow. I get a new agent. I get a manager. I get asked to stay for a couple of weeks to take meetings with producers and directors. Miramax accepts to pay me, not pay me salary, but to pay my hotel in my car for an extra two months for me to stay here and take meetings. So I stay here an extra two weeks after I wrap. I take all these meetings and my manager and my, and my uh, agent say, listen, you, we're going to get you work and you're going to work all the time. You need to move to L.A. So that's called having juice. So I go to New York. I sublet my apartment and I come to L.A. This particular day, it's raining. I have a fever. I have a cold right? I have two auditions. I finished my first audition in Burbank. It's time to go to my second audition. It's in fucking Santa Monica. Oh my God. Yeah, call my of agent. Course. 
I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. So I show up. I get there. It's raining. I get out of the car. This is before cell phones, right? So it's like public phone. I get out of the car. And remember uh, um, uh, message services? What was that called? Uh, the way where you call in for your messages? Oh, yes. Um, yeah, um, the, yeah, the messenger the services. Message service. yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I don't remember that. It was just to know that. But anyway, so I so I so I go. I sh- I get out of my car. I'm wet. I'm raining. I have a fever. I hate this. I'm wearing black leather pants and a white shirt. I'll never forget. I'm wearing boots, cowboy boots, and I'm like, this is my hair is long. I, 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 I get to this audition, and there are between five and seven men. And the demographic is between 50 and 70 and Uh. they're like overweight and they all look like homeless drunk people (laughs) and me. I get there's Mindy Marin's office in Santa Monica. I turn around, I go to the public phone. I'm like, listen, I'm leaving. Call my manager. I'm leaving. I'm not doing this. Why am I in this audition? These people are like in their 70s. And she's like, Mindy requested you. Don't go anywhere. Go back. I'm going to call her and tell her you're sick to get you in. So I'm like, okay. So I go back in. The door opens. Mindy's like, Vincent comes through. I go in. I audition. I love it. And you just strut through. Like, how dare you guys? (laughs) But but now now I'm killing auditions, right? Because now I'm applying myself. Now I'm sober. And now I'm like killing the game. So now I'm doing it. So I go in there and I kill it. And the next day, and Bonnie, my manager, May she rest in peace. She's dead. Uh, says to me, they're super interested in you. The tape is going to the director right now. We're going to hear. This is really good. I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm sick. So the next day I hear they want you to come back for director. So I come back for the director. And so they had written the role of Mateo for like this old, drunk, old man, captain of the boat. Right. I come in, I do my version of it, and all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, we need to do, we need to do something about this. This role was two scenes at the beginning of the movie. I come in, it's between me and uh, Tony Plana. The director takes the video of my audition to his wife and says, who do you want to see on the screen? And the wife goes, Vincent. I get the job, the part is rewritten, so now I'm like in the first 40 minutes of the movie. Yes. And my career begins. Those eyes. <laughs> can I tell you? I can. So when I looked up his bio, right? One of the things that, and it was just on a separate line. It was like those eyes. Because you look at Vincent and he has these amazing, beautiful <laughs> eyes. And I'm sure that that wife <laughs> looked at your eyes and she was like, it's Vincent. Yes, <laughs> yes. Mesmerized. Again, yeah. the universe doing for you what we cannot do for ourselves, right? That's right. That's right. Well, amazing cast in Anaconda. I know, right? It yeah. Was like a, it was like a it was John like Voight. Yes. Eric Stone, Jennifer Lopez, yes. Ice oh, Cube. Yeah. Amazing. Mm-hmm. But now, so you meet selfishly. I'm going Okay, fangirl. Yes. Moment. I'm, I'm, I'm about to fangirl here. Do so, it. That's when you meet my queen, Jennifer Lopez, my other queen, because I have a few a few in my life. Yeah, and she's just hot, hot, hot right now, right? She's, she's just coming off yet. of... She just finished Blood and Wine. Yeah. She's about... To, she leaves Anaconda to go to go shoot Selena. She yeah. gets Selena while we're in Brazil. We shot Anaconda in Brazil. We okay. were in the Rio Negro in Manaus for eight weeks. Right. So we are there. She gets Selena, which she had auditioned for already. And at that point, she had done Blood and Wine and Mi Familia. She's getting she Money Train. I think she had done Money Train already. No, Money Train is later, okay. I think. She did this movie with... She plays a teacher in some movie with um, Robin Williams. So now she does Selena. But she, she does Selena after Anaconda. So now okay. while we're in Brazil, we bond. And we become best friends. Best friends. How is it being best friends with Jennifer Lopez? <laughs> You know, at that point, Jennifer Lopez. I'm just saying. At that point, she's Jen. She's not J Lo. She's not Jennifer Lopez, and she's just this ex-fly girl who's now become an actor. She's this regular girl, and she's Latina, and I'm Cuban, and so we bonded. And I mean, a lot of people, most people, don't know this, but she, Jennifer, hates to sleep alone, and she used to call me, and I used to come over and sleep with her. 
Not sexually. I mean, no, I'm gay. of course she knew, not. But it was right. like, so that's uh, that was our relationship. You know, I was there in her house when that famous green dress is delivered to her house. Wow. <gasps> and there's a uh, TV show called The Diary of. And there's this moment where the dress is there. We're like playing with the dress. And she's like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with this? Yeah, dress? Like, wait, and I'm where, like, where's the rest of it? I'm like, she's like, what am I going to do with this? And I'm like, curtains, girl. <laughs> and so we had that relationship. Yeah. Right? So she started to, I continue working, but she, she was yeah, she becoming took off like, like, like a yeah. rocket. You know, like the diva that she is today, yeah. which she deserves every bit of that because I have never met anyone as committed and hardworking as she is. Not only that, but I have never now, I've seen her naked, right? So let's just call it what it is. Yeah. I have never met anyone as gorgeous and perfect as Jennifer Lopez. Jennifer Lopez's skin is unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. As beautiful as she is on film and TV, when you meet her in person, she makes the way she looks on film and TV look like, oh, whatever. She is stunning. She's hardworking. And she deserves everything luminous. she's done. Luminous. Yeah. So we're, you know, we're best friends. She's, my career is kind of like staying like this. She's going up. Then my career starts to go down. And we sort of like started to like walk away. I mean. Drift apart. Drift apart. Yeah. You know what that's like. Oh, yeah. And. Uh, Which happens a lot in it Hollywood. And it has and nothing to do with feelings, right? It's just But I got to tell is. you, it's so funny because I'm so good with everything. But I think. There's a conversation that we need to have. You and Jen. Nipper. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to be too familiar. <laughs> I, I, I feel unresolved. Yeah. Mm. With her. Uh, but whatever. That is not what this podcast is about, baby. No, no it is. No. Let's get her on the phone right now. Jen. Jen? Yeah, right. <laughs> Yo, baby. Which, <laughs> yeah. by the way, I used to have direct dial and all of a sudden I can't get to her. Yeah, yeah. And he was like, wait, what happened? Yes. You know? Yep. I mean, when she was shooting the, the movie with Jane Fonda. What was the name of the, the wedding planner or whatever it's called? Yeah, no, the, no, 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 not the wedding Step planner. Monster in law. The monster in law. She's shooting monster in law. I go on set. I'm talking to her, and Jane Fonda leans over from the set and goes, "Jennifer, and who is that friend of yours?" And she goes, "That's oh, my friend Vincent." She goes, "He's quite the handsome man, isn't he?" And it was like, so, I mean, so we have this kind yes. of like life moments. This is happening all the time. Right. And then everything changes. Yeah, because your your path it becomes this divergent path. Now all of a sudden you have people, you have te- you have teams around you, mm-hmm. you have you know these different. And, and listen, I am not bad mouthing her in any ways. I have nothing but praise, respect, love, and admiration for her, and always will. Yeah, I she continues to be a really important person in my life, and the bond that we had, you know, without saying anything. We shared a lot of intimate moments, and there was a lot of times in her life where I was there for her, and vice versa. Yes, and vice versa. You know? Well, you even sharing like this part because this is like I think for you, for both of you guys, she had done smaller films, but this is like a big blockbuster movie. I mean, to share that whole experience of like, oh my God, this is we're working with these huge actors, and we're doing this film. So, what was it like? actually shooting like working on the movie which Danny Trejo was also in yes who was in everything so talk about the universe yeah so I told you how I wanted to become a dancer the way that I wanted to become an an actor is I saw a movie called Coming Home with John Voight and Jane Fonda and in Coming Home there's a monologue at the end Uh, John Voight shows up to speak to veterans or something in a wheelchair and he has this monologue and I watch him and I'm like that's what I want to do right fast forward here is John Voigt, and we're in Brazil, and he's in my bedroom, Ugh. and we're talking, and he's telling me his journey, how he had done The Sound of Music with Mary, Mer- with Mary Martin on Broadway, his journey, which I'm not going to get into, but it's all, I never knew he that. opens up personally, I right. open to him personally, yeah. and all of a sudden, here is the guy that motivated me to become an actor, and we're working side by side, and he's like, you know, so... I get emotional because it's like, again, again, I cannot make this happen. 
This is what happens when I say yes, I show up, and I allow the universe to work in my life. You always hear the best years of your life are yet to come. Yeah. Baby, Those are that's a fact. Mm. That's a fact. Again, I digress. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so, so your career doesn't go gangbusters like Jennifer Lopez's. What happens after that? I know you start. So to... I do lots of stuff. I yes. do Mulholland Drive. You want to know how that happened? I get to New York. I'm working at Trump Tower. Trump Tower opens on Fifth Avenue. And right. there's a restaurant called the DDL Bistro, which is Dino De Laurentiis Bistro on the basement floor. And I'm a waiter there. It's only open for lunch Monday through Friday. It's the perfect job. And uh, Dino is producing Dune, uh, Elephant Men, and Blue Velvet for uh, David Lynch. David starts to come down there for lunch. And I'm the only waiter he allows to wait on him. We don't really talk. He just likes me. Right. And, you know, he always had spaghetti uh, with uh, pepper, olive oil, and Parmesan. That's 1982, 83, whatever, whatever it was. Fast forward. I'm in Hollywood. Now I have a career. Now I am somebody. Now I'm taking meetings. Now they're giving me jobs. Now I'm doing all this thing. And uh, Joanna Ray calls and say, listen, uh, calls Bonnie, my manager, and says, we want to talk to Vincent uh, about this David Lynch project. And so there's no name, there's no nothing. All we know is that it's a pilot for ABC. So I go in. So the way that you audition, uh, you don't audition for David in terms of like there's not a scene and you don't audition. You meet with David and you have a conversation much like we're having here. And so, but he happened to have gone to New York and he wasn't there. So Joanna and I sit down, she puts a camera on me and we start talking. And at the end of the conversation, she says, is there anything you want to tell David directly? And I was like, yeah, David, just so you know, this is Vincent. I'm the guy who used to wait on you at DDL Bistro back in the day. Spaghetti, peppers, parmesan, what? Boom. <laughs> and I hang up, right? Two days later, we get the call. David wants to work with Vincent. Uh, he's writing him into the show. Wow. Now, ready? At that time, I get my first co-star role in a movie opposite Billy Baldwin called uh, Primary Suspect. And they're ready to go, and I'm the, I'm the guy that get the role. My manager, my agent, say we have to hold <laughs> David Lynch's hiring Vincent, so we don't know yet. Oh, no. So we start calling David, and he can't commit, he can't commit, he can't commit, he can't commit, he can't commit. We turn it down. And I go to Utah to shoot this film. The day after I'm in Utah, we get the call saying, oh, my God, David definitely wants Vincent. It's seven out of 13 episodes. It's a recurring role. Uh, and that's as much as we can say right now. He really wants him. My, my representation is like, well, he's just started shooting a movie. So the producers of Mulholland Drive, I'm sorry, yes, Mulholland Drive, which was a pilot for ABC originally, by the uh, way, okay. a two-hour pilot. Right. Those producers call the producers of the movie. They make an agreement. So now I am being flown back and forth and shooting both at the same time. The life Hello? of a movie star. <laughs> Hello, Hollywood. You're yeah. Hollywood. <laughs> so I am somebody kind of thing. Right? He's so a man in um, demand. Right. So I do this thing. The movie goes. It's really great. The pilot is shot. ABC decides, no, we don't want it. They hold on to it for 14 months. After that, they release it to David. David cuts it, shoots a couple of more scenes, and releases it as a movie, which is Mulholland Drive. Right. He ends up winning Best Director at Cannes wow. for that movie. And so in the, in the pilot, I have three scenes. In the movie, I have one scene because that's what was kept. Right. And so all of a sudden... I'm in this David Lynch movie. I'm part of the David Lynch crew, which, by the way, moving forward, four years ago, my mom dies. I'm like, what do I want to do in my life? I decide to act again. My agent called Joanna. Joanne calls David. David's at the tail end of shooting Twin Peaks. He's got like two weeks left, and he goes, I'm writing something for him. Writes me a scene. I end up doing Twin Peaks. Anyway, I digressed again. So what were you asking me? <laughs> Well, it's hard to now transition into the, the new facet of your life when right. This so then I quit like acting. So going... let's go from there. Yeah. Yeah. But you quit acting. So I quit. 
Why? I quit because I have been... In New York, I was never stereotyped. And here in LA, I'm doing the drug dealers, the drug addicts, the rapists, the, oh my God, I do this wonderful episode of NYPD Blue where I play a transvestite hooker. I mean, it's, I do all these really exciting roles, but it's becoming to be the same kind of role, always the bad guy, always right. the dark. And I'm like, you know what? I, I'm sick of this. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to change roles. So I had long hair. I cut my hair off against everyone's advice and they're like okay you're not going to work i'm like yes i will uh and for that year i'm not working and i'm like oh my god so i quit acting and now i'm like but it's a, it's i start therapy and so again one of those incredible things that happened because i really believe that what i was born to do in life was to be a performer and I quit and I go into therapy and what I discover is that I am a creative being. Yes. That what I was born to do is create and that anything and everything I choose, I will bring that with it. And that would always put my stamp on anything I do creatively. And so the doors open up of life. So I go into marketing and advertising and I go work for this ticket uh, office and I take it from like one, you know, like this amount of money per year to this amount of money per year. And I come up with all these uh, ad campaigns or whatever. It goes great. Then I leave that and I start working in event design and I reinvent myself as an event designer. And then I decide, fuck it, I'm going to do this for myself. And then I open my own event design company and then I have it for a year and it's 2008 and the economy crashes and I'm like, oh, then I have to quit that. Then a friend of mine has a store and he's like, come work for me, help me out with the windows. And I go there and I start helping them. And one day it's like, can you help that client? I don't have, I'm too busy. And I start helping this client. All of a sudden I create a wardrobe for the guy. The guy becomes my client and I become a stylist. So I'm doing that. And so I'm, now I'm a stylist and it's five years into it. And I'm like, I can't do this the rest of my life. What am I going to do? So I decide to go back to school. I go to UCLA. I become a translator and an interpreter. So now, At what age is that? 50 years old. Hello. But this is what I want to really kind of drive home to our listeners is that it's not really all about reinvention or reinventing yourself. It's really about life continuously, you know, unveiling itself and you showing up and that you can have, you know, a third act, a fourth act, a fifth act. There is no limit to the acts one can have. There is no limit to the acts I can have in my life. Right. For sure. And the thing about, because I used to feel that way, it's about life doing things, but it's also about being open to see what life has to offer Absolutely. and taking yes. chances. Right. I think we were talking about a little bit earlier about like, if I really believe that the universe is at play here and that I'm going to be taken care of no matter what, what are the actions that I'm taking? that solidify that how do i really know that i'm really trusting and taking chances in my life well by taking chances and as a result of that my life grows and i grow and things continue to happen so i re reinvent myself i go to school i get a certificate from ucla on interpreting and, and uh, translation i start doing it and i do it in the court system and i do labor law and i do immigration law and i'm not really feeling it it's very stressful and i don't like it so i decide to go entertainment i start translating scripts and then for almost four years ago in may it'll be four years this production company comes to me and says we are looking for translators to trans translate foreign film and tv into english dubbing scripts so fast forward, I open my own business. So now I do that. But wait. <laughs> 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I get a call from a friend when I was a stylist. that says, listen, I have these two guys, friends of mine in Austria. They're coming down to L.A. One of them is turning 40 and the husband wants to buy him a makeover and a new wardrobe. Are you available? I was like, yes, because my philosophy is that I say yes to life until I have to say no. And most times I rarely have to say no because I'm always saying yes. So I say yes and I meet these people and I meet this guy, he's kind of like shy and like after working together, he has a new wardrobe, he has a, a, a personal sense of style and he's kind of like op broken up, you know, he's like opened up from his, you know, like open up. That was it 10 years ago, February, I get a call. And a friend of mine says, there's this friend of mine in Sweden who needs a voiceover actor for an industrial video. Are you available? And I say, yes. yes. 
So uh, they put me an email and they're like, no, it's not a, uh, a voiceover video. We are looking for somebody to create a corporate training team to do the United States. And are you available? And I say, yes. Turns out this is the guy that I helped 10 years ago. Wow. Who remembered me. And based on the experience he had with me, I became a choice for him. And I got this. At 57, I get an opportunity to reinvent myself as a corporate trainer. I do this gig as corporate training. I go to Sweden. I go to Singapore. I travel all over the United States. I go to Puerto Rico. I make ridiculous amounts of money. (laughs) Right? But not only that. I tap into a new resource, a new way of sharing my experience, strength, and hope with the world that I wouldn't have ever noticed or known, right? So I bring everything that I've ever done from puppet theater to advertising to getting sober to this one job, and I start to help people. In that way, I start to realize that I can actually coach other people. I start doing that. I'm now in the process of putting together a talk about taking responsibility for all things you. And I have a gig coming up, which I'm not going to say the name of the company because it hasn't been confirmed yet. But I'm getting ready to go present this, do this one-hour talk to this nationwide company. And I guarantee you, there's a new career in the making for me. Yes. Because of that, Kim. Because of yes. Because of yes. Now... I don't want to undermine the fact that there's a lot of work. A lot of work goes into this. I had to find out who I really am. Who am I authentically? What do I want to do with my life? How do I want to live my life? How do I want to live my life today? Is today really all there is? Do I really believe that? How am I living it? Right Right now, talking to you guys, I am as in my body, as present, as in my life, as in the moment, as I could ever be. Yes. And that's how I want to live. So that's the takeaway here. What would I want to give you? Is that what you're asking? What's or, Yeah, what's the takeaway here? The takeaway is find out who you are, not who you think you are, not how you feel, not who people think you are, but who are you? And when you can become truly integrated with that authentic self once you are able to take full responsibility for all things you sky's the limit age is a number there's always an opportunity to start over to restart to start new the only thing that will get in the way of your growth is you you. the Mm. moment you can live in that belief And it's more than I believe. The moment you can live in that knowing, there is no stopping you. And the reason I say this is from experience. I don't talk at people. And I don't talk about things I don't have experience with. When I tell you this is because that is my journey continues to be. My experience continues to be. Oh, beautiful. We're going to leave that right there. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Because there really isn't anything else. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me and Kim. I mean, we've been sitting here like (laughs) gagging, you know, just gagging and in awe. And we just we just appreciate you so much. Thank you so much, Lewis. I want to say, I've been listening to your podcast regularly. And like I said to you earlier, I think there's a documentary here in the making. But beyond that, I want you to know that you are a story of reinvention. And so are you. I want you to know this thing that I'm talking about, you're living it. And if you're not aware of that, that's the missing link. Oh, thank you, baby. You are doing it. And what the work that you're doing is really important. Because it's important to let people know that when a door closes, that's not the end of the road. That's just a new beginning. I had so at one point I had a line of t-shirts because I got another reinvention. <laughs> and one of my t-shirts is rock bottom, it's only the beginning. Oh my god, I love that. I'll give you a t-shirt. I have one. Yes, would love. Rock bottom, it's only the beginning, baby. Get up and go. Well, so thank you. I yes. feel honored and kind of like a little surprised to be put in the category of the people that you guys have been talking to so that 
is one of the most inspiring stories that me and Kim have heard thus far. And you are truly a voice that needs to be heard and, you know, a personality and a vibration that needs to be followed. So where can people follow you, contact you, see more about you, get to know you better? Thank you, Luis. Yeah, right now, people can contact me at vincentcastellanos.com. V-I-N-C-E-N-T-C-A-S-T-E-L-L-A-N-O-S.com. Woo! All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, darling. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Work. You can follow us on Instagram at Work Podcast and on Twitter at Work Podcast. Thank you for your likes, shares, subscribes. Leave us a rating or a review so that other people can find us. And Lewis, what you what you got to say? You can also follow me at workdanceclass.com where I teach a monthly Vogue workshops. So this has been another episode of Work, Work the Podcast. Bye, Thank- guys. Bye. <laughs>